Well, good morning, y'all. Kind of a fun change of pace to be down here for once. Uh, not up there with the little glowy red lights you see in the back uh, running the broadcast. Nice change of pace to be down here and getting to share with y'all this morning. Excited about that opportunity. Excited about Christmas season. Christmas has always meant a, a lot to me. It's always been one of my favorite seasons uh, of the year. Um, and I feel like sometimes it's a little underrated. And like that's, I know that's like a really ironic thing to say. I know it's a really ironic thing that, to express the idea that Christmas is underrated when you see the room the way that it does and traffic has gotten infinitely worse um, and all of our bank accounts are, well, y'all just pray for each other's bank accounts, I guess, uh, and mine and, and everybody's. Um, uh, Hunter Henderson is upstairs, uh, one of the volunteers helping run the booth this morning, and I was talking to him. Uh, he works at Cups, and the first thing he said when I asked him how that was going was he said, it's been pretty good, it's gotten, gotten busy. Like, it, the first thing he thought about when I asked him how Cups is is to think about the increased holiday traffic. So I, I, I get that it's a weird thing to say that Christmas might be a little underrated in our estimation. By that, I don't mean the business. I don't mean the pomp and circumstance. I don't mean the amount of fuel and wear and tear in our cars. I don't mean the amount of stress and planning and Christmas cards printed and stamps licked and everything else. I don't mean the sort of things that the Grinch could steal. I mean the actual transformative power of Christmas, the radical things that Christmas asks of us, I think are criminally underrated when we try to walk through the season of Christmas. We're in John's Gospel today, which I know is a little bit of a different text, but I think it is perfect for reminding us just how undervalued certain aspects of Christmas are. We'll be in John's Gospel. I want to reread um, what Ian uh, read for us this morning, just so you can hear it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. That is an interesting choice for Christmas text. I'll be honest with you. Um, I didn't pick it. I'm glad that it got picked. Uh, you can thank her for that. Um, but yeah, it, like, let's just go ahead and acknowledge the fact that it is a very different text. One of the first things that we do in, in youth Bible study when we, we read a text, um, I ask them to interrogate the text. What we mean by that is that we believe that Scripture can hold up to our tough questions. It can uh, be there for us in tough moments. Um, and our hard and complex thoughts um, are don't intimidate God. Um, scripture is ready. God is ready. So, we, so I encourage them, the very beginning of the lesson, before I get to any of my thoughts, is we ask tough questions about Scripture. What is it that jumps out to us about this text? What jumps out to us? What do we know about it? That, what, do we know, what do we notice that interests us? And honestly, one of the first things that should interest us is that this text doesn't get into a nativity story. I will pause just real quick on that and just 
I do have to brag. Anytime I get this microphone, I got to brag. If, if you want some biblical scholars in your life, come volunteer with us in the youth group and listen to them. You think the singing is pretty, which it was. Wonderful job, girls. Thank you. But man, the way they back it up with the, the way that they're pursuing God and the questions they ask of Scripture, uh, it's made me go back and check stuff that I haven't looked at since I was in a master's level course. Uh, they keep me sharp and they make me learn. And I am thankful for that. And it will do you a world of good if you come and visit with us. Not to say, not mention that obviously this will help me too because I need volunteers. But it will help you too, I promise. But yeah, one of the first things that should jump to your mind when you read this text, given that, again that we are reading it in the context of Advent and Christmas, is why isn't there anything cute in this story? There's no manger. There's no baby or any sheep. There aren't any very cleaned up, very sanitized, very nativity scene friendly shepherds, because let's be honest, that is a gross job. There are no magi and their glory. There is a wild philosophical text from the fourth evangelist telling us about life and light and a light that can't be conquered and something bigger and stronger than we can possibly imagine. So why read this text at Advent? Why not do one of the other Gospels? Why not Mark, Matthew with the Magi? Why not Luke with his shepherds? This text has really something really important to us. I re, I, I, and I was, as I was trying to get my head around this text, and, and, and what to do with it during, during Advent. What to do with this text that calls out from the very beginning of time and then connects to Jesus and connects to us today. I found uh, one of my commentaries. Uh, Gail O'Day was a, was a scholar at uh, Candler um, and ultimately was at Wake Forest School of Divinity before she passed a few years ago. I, I really resonated and really landed with me and really helped me unlock the text when I read what she wrote about this little prologue section of John. The newness wrought by God in Jesus is so dramatic that a conventional narrative of origins is insufficient. That is because the story of Jesus is not ultimately a story about Jesus. It is, in fact, the story of God. The words incarnation in Jesus redefines life, creation, and salvation. And in John 1, 1 through 18, the fourth evangelist gives the gospel reader the theological roadmap of God's self-revelation in Jesus. John 1, 1 through 18 does not allow readers to distance themselves, distance themselves from that revelation, but instead draws the reader into the theological claims of the text. I like that. Because there is something convenient, I think, sometimes about our imagination of the, of the nativity. It's a good story. And the nativities are cute. And we love putting them on the tree, and we love putting them in our yards. But I think sometimes we're tempted to think about those as a story involving somebody else. That's cool that that happened to them. I really agree with Dr. O'Day here. This story is so radical. You can't have that distance. 
This story is so radical. It's, it, it's like she's saying that John, on behalf of John, that John is saying, because this story is so radical and so encroaching and so transformative to our lives, I'm not, like Matthew and Luke did a great job giving the nativity. We think that John was the last of the four written. It's like you can really hear John saying, Matthew and Luke already gave you a great account of the nativity. I need to tell you what was going on. They told you the, the, the story. I need to tell you why this matters and what is going on. So why read this text at Advent? Because we need to hear about life. We need to hear about life. We need to hear about the life that is the Word. And by that we mean the person of, of Jesus. English is a really fun language, and, uh, and by that I mean full sarcasm. Um, uh, everybody that, that has learned English as a second language or has, uh, has attempted to help bridge that gap, man, blessings to them because English is a bad language. It really is. And we're stuck with the reality of the fact that we translate a lot of different Greek words all the same way, and it just really isn't helpful. And, and I want to emphasize for this that this passage uh, if, if it isn't already clear to you, it, I hope it becomes clear to you. This is talking about Jesus. This is not simply talking about, about the corpus of Scripture that you can hold in your hands. This is something much more profound. This is not the revelation of the Word of God. This is the Word with a capital W. This is the embodiment of God. This is the knowledge of God. And not knowledge in the sense of, like, I learned... Uh, that Gail O'Day was at Candler before she was at Wake Forest, like these very factual sort of things. This is knowledge embodied. This is experiential. And John wants us to hear back to the very beginning of life, when there was no life, when there was no existence. John evokes Genesis 1, in the beginning. And before life like we know it, cells and DNA and mitosis and meiosis and all the other fun things that they talk about when, they're, when we have our study hall nights up on the youth floor. Before all that began was the Word. Was Jesus. And that should undo us in a good way. That should trouble us in a good way. Our finite human brains should quiver a little bit the idea of something that eternal. And be encouraged in a world of so much death and destruction when you can't open the news without hearing some new horrible thing. When we have just walked through this path together of the last couple of years of global pandemic, which has been the, literally the entirety of my tenure here, um, I, when other friends at other churches asked me about, hey, how's it been going the last couple of years? Like, well, I mean, I started two months to the day before I first canceled church service, but, you know. Um, like, this is a story that we've all been through together. And, like, acknowledge that and grieve that and deal with that. And, but also acknowledge that the story of Christmas, the story of God, is wrought up in life and a life that cannot be put out. And I think we need to hear that at Advent. We're, we need to read John's story of the beginning of Jesus because we need to hear about life. But we also need to read it because we need to hear about light. 
which is something interesting he, he talks about. There at the very end, the very last passage, at the very end of five, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. That, if you have another Bible on your, like, if you have different uh, translations other than the NRSV available, you probably noticed that as many translations as you can find, you're going to find a different translation of the very end of verse 5. Um, this is a really, one of those, like, really sticky little spots to translate um, that used to give me trouble when I had more of a mindset, of like, okay, it's got to have this one word that it translates to, or until it's like, all of the canon of scripture just falls apart because we can't figure out what this one word means. And I think every other minister in this room or retired minister in this room uh, is probably laughing at that a little bit and has felt that tension before. Um, but no, I, I found myself later in, in a position of, I think it's beautiful that this is a hard to translate word because I think it needs all of the different translations. Most of them go towards something like it can't be conquered, it can't be extinguished, which kind of fits with that whole life part. It can't, the, the darkness, the things that overwhelm us, death, destruction, the overall state of entropy of the universe cannot put out the light of God. Which is saying something. Because our whole conceptualization of light is, is finite. It does go out. The funny thing about light, the way that we comprehend it, also that really fits with what John's saying here, is that ironically, all the way that we conceive of light, because we have only ever existed in a universe with atoms and molecules and God's laws of physics, is that light can ultimately consumes. Light consumes. You need fuel to make light. Things burn. Batteries go out. The batteries were charged using electricity from some power plant somewhere that burned something or reacted. Something changed. Something was consumed so that that light could happen. Just a few days ago, uh, the staff was out to lunch uh, for my birthday on, on Tuesday, and it kind of came up that I had a lot of different interesting jobs before this one and bounced around a lot. Um, I had a very, very millennial-looking resume full of a lot of really different random things um, because that's just the economy now. Um, and one of them was, was I used to actually be a physics teacher. Um, yeah, right? Um, I did make the same face too. Um, I used to be, I, I was briefly a physics teacher, um, despite not having a degree in that. Um, and it just kind of, just kind of fell into it, backwards into it, um, accidentally. Um, and, but I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I, I, I mentioned at lunch was probably because my, my dad is a now retired mechanical engineer. And so like I, at a, from a nuclear power plant was his last uh, big stint in his career. And I, and I told the folks talking to me at lunch that like, I, I don't remember not knowing the core basics of, of, of what a nuclear reaction is and how it fires a reactor and how that works. 
And like when I was a kid, I thought that was normal, and that's things that people know. Um, and then I grew up and found out I'm weird. Um, but yeah, and funny enough, that very same day, the Department of Energy announced that we have made the first incremental step towards a fusion nuclear reaction instead of a fission nuclear reaction to create energy, making protons bond together in a way that releases energy instead of taking uranium or plutonium and making, the, making their atoms split apart to release tremendous amounts of energy. That's the grail of energy production. The idea that we can recreate how the sun works is, is the, the ultimate goal of energy use in, for our species. But even that, as, as, as efficient as it is, as long down the road as a little bit of hydrogen will get you in a fusion reaction, the universe lasts long enough, the sun will run out. Even the most efficient reaction that we understand, if it creates light, it consumes. It needs to tear something up to make light. And on the business end, even the things that it is bringing into light are harmed and can be burned up by it. Ask any of our youth who uh, weren't super uh, judicious in their sun tan uh, lotion application on the retreat this past summer. I own a, a nice fishing kayak. I have to protect it from the sun because I live in Mississippi and there's a large chunk of the year where it is getting full blast UV and that plastic ain't gonna hold up for forever and I don't have the kind of money for it to not hold up for forever. So I've got a tarp over it and I'm gonna have to replace that tarp sooner or later. You know why? Because that tarp took the hit of that UV radiation instead of my kayak. Light consumes. It, need, it consumes in order to create light and it, and it ultimately breaks down everything it touches. That's how we understand light. But what John is talking about here and what Isaiah is talking about here is one who will look at a bruised reed, a plant that has been damaged but is still trying to hold on and will protect it and keep it safe. A, a candle that is almost starting to struggle out. Uh-uh. Hold it. Keep it safe. Bring it back up to fire. What John and Isaiah are getting at here is the very same fire that lit the bush that Moses saw. A bush that was on fire and yet was not consumed. A light that shines and illuminates without needing to consume, without burning or breaking down that which it touches. Like we, we can't get our heads around that because everything about physics go, nope, not how it works. And God says, that's how I work, though. That's how this light works. That's why I love that in the lexical range here, you know, you hear some of the translations you'll see, it doesn't extinguish, it doesn't, can't overcome, it can't snuff out the light. And the other translations, including the one Emily K. read in the children's moment, it can't understand the light. I think there's this idea that you, to understand something, you have to be able to kind of hold on to it a little bit and to grab a hold of it. 
And when the light can't be conquered and the light can't be put out and the light says mm -mm, to the law, very laws of physics, the basic core assumption of selfishness that something must be consumed, of course, that which wants to destroy the light can't understand that. Of course it can't figure that out. That's why the Grinch doesn't get it. Like, you know, that's why, like, that's why the Grinch doesn't get it. That's exactly what he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the light. He doesn't understand a light that shines regardless. Because he thinks if he packages all this stuff up, it'll go away. The same way as, you know, they had the little flashlight in the children's moment this morning. If you turn that thing off, or even if it's on and you put it under something, no light. Easy enough. And at a certain point, there, there's this idea that I, I think that, 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 that evil has and selfishness has that, that seems really simple to put out a small flashlight, but the idea is ultimately scalable. Like, put out enough lights, put out enough flashlights, cover up enough trees, cover up enough things, and the light will stop shining. And yet it breaks through every single time. The Grinch isn't the only Christmas character who doesn't understand. I like that we keep kind of telling ourselves the same stories over and over again. Scrooge didn't get it either. The Grinch, his whole assumption was, okay, if I, if I do this, it'll go away. And Scrooge lived in denial, the same denial. If I shut it away, it'll go out. Darkness is better. Uh, my wife and I actually recently reread the, the classic, the, the original Charles, Charles Dickens, uh, Christmas Carol. And there's one line that really struck out to me. Uh, uh, darkness is cheap. And Scrooge liked it. All of our evil Christmas characters work around the assumption that the light can be put out. And they are all deluding themselves because they all don't understand the light, exactly as John says at the very beginning of his gospel. So we need to read this passage of Advent because it tells us about life. It tells us about light. We also need to read it at Advent because we need to ask ourselves, Am I live, are we living like it? Are we living like those things are true? That's why Christmas, I think, is underrated because it is so easy to ironically do something like what the Grinch does. In a matter of weeks, that thing is going to be a horrifying uh, uh, fire risk. Anybody who's ever had a real tree knows that to be the case. I love coming in here in the middle of the day when no one's been in here, the AC hasn't been running, and it smells wonderful in here. It smells like Christmas. The last year we had a bonfire and did some more uh, for Epiphany with the youth, and I cut off the top part, and that fire got taller than I did. Uh, taller than I am. And it was just a fragment. Those things are crazy combustible. In a couple of days, that thing's going to need to be somewhere, anywhere other than here. Maybe you don't have a real tree. Maybe you want to go the artificial route. We got a nice little LED one at home, and I throw some uh, purple and green and gold on it and call it a Mardi Gras tree come Epiphany, so I've got it up a little bit longer. But regardless, one way or the other, ultimately that thing gets put up. It's a good idea, and you know it. That's why you're laughing. We do the same thing the Grinch does. We just don't cackle about it. We take everything 
and we put it up in the attic, and Christmas can stay there. Maybe we don't understand the light either. Maybe we don't understand that the light keeps shining. And like Dr. Day said in, in the quote at the beginning that I gave you all from her commentary, this story draws us into the middle of it and says that, no, I can't give you a normal birth story to tell you about something this profound. And I can't, I don't want you to walk away from this acting the same anymore. Do we act like this life is true? Do we act like this light is true on December 26th and December 27th and January 3rd and June 5th. Do we act like it in terms of, do we understand that the light isn't going to burn us? And like us, like when we go to God, I like just say for ourselves, when we go to God, I have, I know I have felt this. Do we, do we feel that feeling of, oh, I can't take this to God because it's not a really big concern and other people have it worse? Like there's some kind of counter in your prayers against God? Like there's a charge on them? I drive, I drive on 55 a lot because I live in Bellhaven. I have to come up here every day for work. And as I've told some of y'all, I, I don't take credit for this. I heard of this elsewhere before. If I didn't know better, you'd think they charged for using your uh, turn signal on I-55. Yeah, going to God ain't like that. If it's small, open up to Him. The light doesn't burn, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't consume. And then, when we, how we relate to others, the same thing. Are we communicating and spreading forth a light that doesn't consume, that doesn't burn, that only sheds light, that only illuminates, that only brings life? and joy, and peace, and happiness. It's interesting to me, all the best lies always have some truth to it, and it's really interesting to me that the Grinch lied about light. Because it tells me what he thinks about light. He tells Cindy Lou Who, I'm going to take the tree away because there's a light that's not working. And he thinks that lie is going to work because his whole conceptualization of light is that it's something that can burn out. And it might be fixable, it might not be, but it's something that can burn out. But it didn't. He took the tree away, even if he, if he wasn't lying to himself or Cindy Lou. He takes the tree away, and let's say he brings it back to, that, it, that it was broken and he was going to fix it. Even if he hadn't brought it back, the light would have shown. Actually, last night I, I, I rewatched the old, the original 1966 one just you know to kind of get my head around it, and I found it interesting that the narrator doesn't call attention to this, but after he's lied to Cindy Lou Who, after he's taken everything away, and and there's the gorgeous scene where the, the Who's come down and they sing, but the way the animation the narration doesn't call attention to it, but the way the animation is done is the whole center of the town lights up and literally a ball of light comes up from their singing and ascends in his face. May we be a people who shine that light wherever we go, every day during Advent and afterwards. Amen.